Welcome to the podcast of Amago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Buenos días, Amago Day. Buenos días. Ay, ay, ay. There we go. Good job. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Eva, and I am one of the pastors here at Imago Day. And I just, I just want to say that if you're here for the first time, let me say again, welcome. Welcome to our community. About eight years ago, five pastors got together, and they began to explore what it meant to celebrate Christmas in a different way. That process of exploration and dreaming took shape and became what we know as Advent's conspiracy today, a movement that resists the cultural pressure of consumerism and instead encourages relational giving. And that is what we saw in the video. That's what some of the missional grants are. They're initiatives that are birthed within our community out of a desire to give relationally of our resources, our energy, to the broader community. And when I look at this video, and I hear from Renee and Mike, from the Jacksons, from Eric and Ryan, I'm thinking, what is it that drives these people to engage in this way? And I notice that these, these folks have some things in common. First, they are sympathetic, not in the I feel sorry for you kind of way, but but in the sympatheo original Greek kind of way that means to be affected with the same feeling as another, to feel for, to have compassionate for. These people know foster care. These people know skateboarding. They know what it means to be away from their native land. They understand because they've been through it. And the people in the video share another similarity, and that is that they mediate relationships between the faith community and the community at large. And the reason why they are the best mediators in these relationships is because they've been in the same place, so they understand. Sympathetic mediators. These people give us a glimpse into Christ and his work as our sympathetic high priest. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to, to the Bible, to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And this year, we've been on a journey reading the Bible as a story, the story of God and his people. And as the year comes to close, we find ourselves in Hebrews, which I think is a great way to enter Advent because Hebrews paints a picture that it's beautiful about Christ. And this letter originally was written to a group of Jewish believers that were being exhausted because they were being persecuted for their faith. And because they thought they could not go any further, they were thinking about going back to Judaism. And the writer is trying to to dismantle the idea that Judaism was better than faith in Jesus. And is trying to, to encourage them to remain committed to their faith based on who Christ is. 
And when we get to chapter four, the writer already has gone through and explained to them that Jesus is superior to the angels in that he is the revelation. And in the Old Testament, before the law was given, if God wanted to communicate something, he would use angels as his messengers. And the writer is saying, Christ is superior to the angels because he himself is the revelation. He is the word of God. He's also superior to Moses because Christ is the law fulfilled and he is the true liberator of the people. And the writer urges them to believe and obey Jesus so that they do not lose out on his rest and his blessings, just like the Israelites did when they were in the wilderness. And what allows them to endure these trials and keep on going is the Logos, the word of God incarnate in Christ Jesus. So it is in this context that we arrive to chapter 4, verse 14, and it says, since then, and I ask, since what? Well, Christ, since Christ is superior to the angels and to Moses, since you know what happened to the Israelites because of their unbelief, that they did not enter the promised land and enjoy God's rest and his blessings. Since you have Jesus as the incarnate word of God, since all of that, since then, and he goes on to tell them another reason why Jesus is superior. It says in verse 14 through 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace in the time of need. And these verses are not only providing proof that Jesus is superior than any other high priest, but they are meant to be an invitation to come to God and receive his rest, his blessings, his mercy, his grace when in times of need. However, when we read them, sometimes they can cause us a little bit of discomfort. Sort of like a, hmm, hmm. This invitation seems to have a warm tone to it, but between you and I, and this is between y'all and I, here's my struggle. Here's the raw and the real. The invitation does not feel warm at times to me. If we're honest with ourselves, do we really feel that we could come to God with anything at any time? big and small, and receive rest knowing that Christ has gone through the same thing. Could we hope that this invitation is legit? Ultimately, the question that we're asking is, do we believe Christ is who he says he is? And I gotta tell you, there are days when I don't want to accept the invite 
I'm all over approaching God for the big things like salvation and redemption and the crisis and catastrophes, for the struggles of others, for moments like when Karen read, when I have sinned spectacularly, when I am broken and clinging before you, I feel your love like it's everything, a bonfire, a sunrise, an incontainable cleansing blaze. I feel the same way. Oh, in those days, I run to that throne of grace like it's the only place to go. But then there are other days, the ordinary days, the days that are filled with the mundane when I don't want to approach God because I don't think they matter all that much. Or because all of the sudden, I am faced with myself broken and sinful. Because there are days that God is too big, too powerful, too holy for me. He is too powerful, and I am nothing, and I am afraid that I will be struck by lightning because of my sin. And on days like this, I question, how can you, Lord, sympathize with my struggle in the seasons of depression and anxiety, with the anger that ever so often kind of creeps to the surface due to trauma and pain, with feelings of inadequacy from being a woman, a mom, a wife, a pastor, a friend. I wonder, do you understand? And if I quiet my soul and in those moments listen to his voice, I feel embraced by him, comforted by the impression that yes, he knows. And as much as I struggle with this invitation at time, I think this passage, these verses paint a picture of what Jesus is like that gives us a lot of hope. Hope that rests in knowing that he has the ability because of who he is to accept us for who we are. Let's take a look at verses 14 and 15. The phrase great high priest who ascended to the heavens must have clicked in the readers' minds. First, the readers would have known priesthood since it was one of the highest offices in the Israelite society. And the high priest had to be a Levite from the line of Aaron who was Israel's first high priest appointed by God in Exodus 28. And the high priest was tasked with two very important things. The first one was that he ushered men into the presence of God. He was the mediator of that relationship. He also officiated on the Day of Atonement when he entered the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle to offer sacrifices for himself and for the sins of the people. And on this day, the high priest would walk through the outer court, through the holy place, and by himself enter alone into the holy of holies, completely separated from the people outside. And he stood there. He didn't sit down, he stood there, and he offered sacrifice, and then he waited. Until smoke filled the holy of holies, which was the sign that the offering had been accepted. And if all went well, he emerged unharmed from the inner sanctuary. But if there was sin, if the offering was not acceptable, the high priest would be struck dead and had to be dragged from the Holy of Holies by a rope that was tied to his garments. 
This was serious business. It's a serious office. And with this phrase, the writer is saying, Jesus is a high priest greater than Aaron because his priesthood is eternal and superior and because he is none other than the Son of God. Not only he is the high priest in that he had no sin of his own to atone for, yet he chose to atone for ours, but he himself became the perfect sacrifice. Once and for all done, eternal, with no blemish, and absolutely acceptable in the Father's eyes. You see, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were temporary, and they were unable to remove permanently the guilt of sin. But Christ's priesthood is in heaven, in the presence of God, and is eternal. So not only is he a better priest in terms of work, but he ascended to the heavens. Now, what is the significance of that? Well, Jewish tradition believed that there were three heavens, the skies that are blue anywhere but in Oregon, the outer space where are the planets and the stars, and then the third heaven was where, where God and the angels lived. And the writer is saying, Jesus didn't go through all these places to get to the Holy of Holies. He went straight across, straight upward, and he passed all the heavens, and he went straight into the presence of God where he did what nobody had ever done before. Once he got there, he sat at the right hand of God. The earthly priest had to stand Christ sat down because his work was complete once and for all. What does this mean to us? This means that our priest is now present. The uniqueness of who Christ is, is our hope. No other person could have done that. The writer is saying because of who he is and what he has done on our behalf and because this is what we have believed, let us grab onto that for dear life. That's my translation for let us hold fast to our confession. And he continues saying in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The uniqueness of who Christ is, is our hope. Jesus is our sympathetic high priest, meaning like I mentioned at the beginning, not the sympathetic that feels sorry for our situation, but the sympathetic that is affected with the same feeling and is moved with a desire to help, a caring heart that is drawn to alleviate the suffering of others. How did he do that? He became like us. Jesus became the son of man so that he could experience and understand our weaknesses. And the verse goes on to say that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, but he did not sin. And that is the part that I sometimes struggle with. If he did not sin, then how can he possibly understand what I am going through? There are things that I sometimes forget about Jesus' experiences. If we look closely at the story, we will come across him experiencing hunger, thirst, weariness, poverty, grief. 
being bullied, being abandoned. He experienced the death of the people that he loved and cared about. He was angry. He experienced hatred from others, loneliness, disappointment, being misunderstood, sadness, physical abuse, power differential, betrayal, rejection, and temptations. There is one that always gets me and the one that I fuss about with God. Shame. How can Jesus understand my guilt or my shame? What results from my sin? And precisely this week, I was wrestling with this passage, having a Jesus moment, because I couldn't get myself to preach something that I didn't understand completely, and I am asking God, do you understand shame? How can you say you relate to me if you've never experienced this? And then I waited for an answer. And a moment later, a picture was etched in my mind, a cross, a cross. And a man stripped of his dignity nailed to that cross. And the cross in itself was the object of a shameful death. And not only was that how Christ died, but he was naked, exposed for the world to see. And in that moment, I was at a loss for words. Because my excuse to approaching God and entering his rest was completely crushed. In that moment, I know that he felt me. I know that he's moving towards me with a caring heart, desiring to help me in my pain. And I am broken and I can't help but come to him. And just in case I could have felt shameful for doubting him, I am faced with one more reality. The cross that was meant for shame, Jesus turned into a symbol of redemption. Just like what he did and continues to do with my story, with your story, with our story. The verse says that he was tempted in every way, yet he was without sin. And you might say, well, Jesus was not tempted in the same way that I am. To steal a car, to cheat, to look at porn. Listen, all the temptations fall within the same three categories. The lust of the eyes, clothes, money, entertainment. The lust of the flesh, food, sex, thrills, and pride of life. Recognition, praise, and power. And Jesus was tempted in all three ways. Yet he was able to say, no, why, why? Because he loves us. Jesus became like us so that, so that he could experience and understand our pain. But he lived without sin so that he could become our savior. The uniqueness of who Christ is, is our hope. Because he's been through it all, and he's conquered it all, and he's mediated this relationship for us and continues to invite us in to experience the rest. Verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. And the invitation is to come in with freedom and assurance to this throne anytime we need. Whereas in the Old Testament, the high priest could only approach God 
once a year for judgment, Christ's sacrifice made it possible for us to come to him at any time, not for judgment, but for grace. We have this assurance when we are in need of mercy and grace that we will receive it through Christ. Why? Because he understands. He gets us. And he moves towards us with a compassionate heart, eager to alleviate our suffering. And as we come to this throne, we're also sent to offer mercy and grace for people who find themselves in need. And that sometimes looks like priestly work. Sometimes we are called in to jump in and intervene and mediate for other people because that is what Christ has done for us. And I want us to take a few moments now and I want to invite Josh Butler and Howard Andrews to come up here and talk about how one of our missional grants from years past is being used by God and mediating these relationships between the faith community and the police department around the U.S. Howard, so a few years ago, EPIC got a missional grant. Uh, EPIC stands for Every Man Protecting Innocent Kids. And as you guys launched this ministry, can you explain what, what's EPIC's vision? How did it start? Well, it really started, um, for, for me personally, it started as a result of going through years and years of sexual addiction, like porno, pornography addiction, uh, and wanting, after some time in recovery, to, to give back. And I met with Tom Perez, who had gotten the grant. Um, and we really had a vision for the victims of trafficking. And the lowest estimates are 100,000 underage girls in our country are victims of sex trafficking. And we wanted to raise up 100,000 guys across the country to stand up and say, we don't stand for this. We stand for something better. Um, the problem was like, what can we do about it? You know, because we're guys, we're not the natural choice to be counselors for these girls or to be victim advocates. And as much as we might want to be vigilantes, we can't do that either. Yeah. So you're wanting, you know, so there's this desire. We want to stand in the gap. We want to intercede. We want to mediate, you know, as Christ uh, desires to step into these places as well. But there's this frustration because I'm not a police officer. I'm not a counselor. What can I do? So as you guys are prayerfully exploring that and doing education and, and uh, working with law enforcement, this idea of cyber patrol comes out. And what, what so what is cyber patrol and uh, how has that kind of gotten off the ground this year? So cyber patrol really started as a way for us to supplement the efforts of law enforcement when they do stings online uh, and make arrests for, for guys that are trying to buy sex. Uh, a busy night for them might be six guys that they can arrest, and then all of the other calls that they've received as a result of those ads just fall through the cracks. So we said, what, what, what if we started posting these ads on your behalf and maybe didn't arrest guys, but at least gave you the information on all of the guys that contacted us? So that's what we do. We'll post an ad online. Uh, posing as a potentially underage girl. Um, we receive phone calls and texts, and then we respond. We let the guys know, hey, we've got your number, and it's been forwarded to law enforcement. And then we really try to engage with them and debunk myths. You know, we tell them, this is not a girl who's putting herself through school. 
This is not a girl who's, even though she says she's 18, necessarily 18. Uh, what you're doing is not only illegal, but it's exploiting another person. So, so yeah. you communicate with them, you're debunking myths, uh, you're, you're inter interceding in that way, and intervening, and then what do you do with those phone numbers that you collect? Well, the plan has been, uh, initially what we'll do, everybody that responds in a text or phone call, we send a video link that was a video recorded for us by a victim advocate, a former victim, um, that basically tells them from her own personal story that what they're doing is something that they shouldn't be doing. Um, we also... Uh, have done some follow-up calls and we'll also, uh, the plan has been to send a letter uh, to all of the guys who've responded to these ads from the Portland Police Department that says, hey, you were found to have responded to this ad on this day and you need to knock it off. Hmm. So PPD, Portland Police sends a letter, almost like a traffic ticket that they receive in the mail. I bet if, that's, uh, if those guys are probably hoping that their wife is not the one who gets the mail that day. It's, yeah. yeah, it's going to be pretty... Shocking. And all this kind of thrives, this industry thrives on anonymity, the sense I can do this in secret, in the dark. And so one of the things you guys are doing are kind of pulling back a veil to say, in a sense, you're seen, you're known, um, and uh, yeah, and to educate. So what has the impact been like as you guys have started this just in this last year? Uh, how has Cyber Patrol grown and what, what's the impact been like? So we started late last summer, early fall, uh, just 10 guys doing a patrol every week. Uh, there'd be, there were, yeah, just 10 of us. Uh, and we posted one ad one, uh, a week for 12 weeks. And in that time, we collected about 1,000 unique contacts. Um, and then in the spring, we launched a larger initiative um, with over 50 volunteers and 10 teams of guys running ads, so multiple ads a week. And since then, we've collected more than 5,000 contacts. Um, wow. And over 1,000 man hours. Yeah, that's awesome. Man, wow. Well, then this last year, or recently, you guys this last month were at a conference, 10 major cities across the country, uh, Boston, Phoenix, Houston, San Francisco, Seattle, uh, major cities that are going, we want to end trafficking in our city, and you guys got the chance to present there. Uh, how, how did that go? Uh, that was a really interesting presentation for us. So Tom did the presentation of what Cyber Patrol was, just basically giving them the premise of what we do. And then the next presentation was done by a research team from Arizona State University and the University of Colorado who had, unbeknownst to us, been tracking what they call online purchase intent across all 10 of these cities and Portland. And uh, I think we have a graph to show. The graph up. <clears throat> but basically, you see the blue line at the top represents the online purchase intent from January of 2013 through September of this year in all of those 10 cities, and then the bottom line is Portland. I think we've got one more graph here to show, uh, the next one. And so these are the 10 major cities that were at this conference, kind of broken out specifically. And the green line, again, is Portland. And so right at the time that you guys start Cyber Patrol, you start to see this plummeting dip. And I think you mentioned before you guys have been going, why are we not getting as many responses? Are we doing it wrong? And actually, like... <laughs> it was very encouraging. <laughs> So what was the response? I imagine you guys are kind of, you know, jaws on the floor at this. And what was the response to those 10 cities who were there? Well, Tom's response was basically, and uh, <laughs> all 10 of the demand reduction coordinators that were there 
looked at Tom and were like, we want that program in our city. Wow. So now you guys have received a major grant to consult basically in these 10 cities, working with uh, surfacing, mobilizing volunteers from churches and working with police departments and law enforcement to set up collaborative relationships that are doing these kind of cyber patrols across the country now. Exactly. And we just got to say, I am uh, amazed by your guys' faithfulness. You guys have sought to just kind of run after this, even when not knowing how do we get engaged, but we want to intercede and, and engage. Uh, maybe just in a one sentence nutshell, what is your vision and hope for the future with this? Uh, basically, that wherever the market of demand goes, that we go with a response to disrupt that demand. Hmm. And all that's coming out of Jesus' intercessory presence that we want to, as he unites us to himself, step in with him in those places in our world. It's awesome. Thanks, Howard. You know, Epic was, was a missional grant that was started a few years ago, and God has just done an amazing, an amazing thing. And, and who knows what will happen with these missional grants that we saw at the beginning um, of our sermon. It, that's, that's just cool. And even though it is cool, mediating relationships are not just cool work, but they're God work. It's you and me, it's the Pinkertons with foster care, the Jacksons with the refugee outreach, it's Eric and Ryan with skateboards, it's Jelana Goble with Embrace Oregon, our missionaries in Nepal, Gary Friesen in Rwanda, and many others who are listening to God's heart for his people and moving out to mediate relationships between the faith community and the community at large. That is priestly work. And that is the work of Jesus Christ, who became human so that he could understand us and enter in with our pain, who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin, even though he had no sin. And then he mediates a relationship with the Father. It's Christ who knows us so well, who knows our insignificant failures and the quietest of sins who continues to invite us in, into rest, into a place where we can obtain what is already ours. And the questions remain, our doubts come and go. We have good days and bad days. And, and maybe I missed something and you're thinking, well, yeah, but there's no way Jesus can understand this or that. And my challenge for us this morning is this, are we going to let these questions keep us from entering the rest of God? Or are we going to trust and hope that Jesus is who he says he is? Jesus is not only our high priest, but as he unites himself with, with, our, with the body and his people, he wants to mediate his presence into the world through us to step in the gap with him. And that is what this table represents, his blood, his body. It unites us. And we can, li we can live the life that God intended for us. He's made a path for you and for me to bring us into that rest, united with him. This table reminds us that Jesus took this path 
so that you and I can enjoy his rest, his blessings, so that you and I can have hope in him, so that you and I can be united with him. In sacrificing for us, we are united with him. I invite you to partake and to remember. Everyone is welcome. It costs nothing. There are no requirements. It's always an invitation. And if you've sensed today that Jesus has spoken to you, if you're restless within, I want to invite you to come forward to the doors where there will be people praying for you. Today is a great day to allow Jesus in your heart. Will you let him be your hope? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are a sympathetic high priest like no other, one that has been in the same places that we've been, one who understands, and one who is standing, sitting next to the Father, standing there, mediating this relationship for us. We thank you for that. Heavenly Father, stir our hearts so that we are compelled to move towards you and not away from you. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice when you are calling us to jumping, to step in the gap and act as mediators because of what you've done for us. Thank you, God, because you are our hope. In your precious name we pray, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.